There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first black business institute, an organization which aims to boost prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to the UK's funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, entrepreneur and business mentor, Bianca Miller-Cole. And over the next 12 weeks, myself and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Lord Michael Hastings, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons and changemakers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections with the guests sharing their favorite pieces of music or soundtrack representing a memorable stage of their life. Joining me today is Patrick Hutchinson, GQ's Humanitarian of the Year, BLM hero, author, co-founder of UTC AI, and now online coach. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, thanks for having me. It's it's a pleasure. It's genuinely a pleasure to meet you. Now, as I mentioned, the podcast is going to be broken down into three segments with your choice of music preceding each one. So your first choice was Biggie Small's Machine Gun Funk. What memories does that conjure up for you? Um, well, like uh, my uh, music I listened to uh, when I was a young man growing up was mainly uh, sort of hip hop music. I did have a very conscious side to me. Like I liked uh, some artists that, you know, rapped about conscious things. But then there was obviously the, the other side where a lot of the rap were, was about um, the upbringing of these artists, what they'd been through, you know, some stuff that they would do, you know, like selling drugs, for example that people might frown upon, but this was their lives and they rapped about it. And um, so, you know, Biggie Smalls, as we know, is no longer with us. He's one of the, the artists that I sort of hold close to my heart. I loved a lot of his music and um, Machine Gun Funk was the track that really had me going when, uh, whenever his music was played. Okay, I love that. So growing up, I know we, we know you now for your kind of meteoric rise and your plethora of accolades, and you know your name is very well known now, but I'd love to know a little bit more about you as you were growing up. So I understand you're one of eight siblings. You grew up in Wandsworth and you're raised by your mother. So what was that like? Yeah, so when I say one of eight siblings, that's on my father's side. Um, on my mother's side, there was just two of us, my sister and I, and my mother. Mm. Um, and I met my, uh, my other eight siblings a little later on down the line. So, you know, growing up, from the early ages, um, it was just my sister and uh, my mom, uh, uh, just the three of us. Um, but it was, um, you know, I had a, I had a, not, I had a good upbringing. Um, I did feel quite lonely at times because, like I say, it was only my mom and my sister, and then I had a series of aunts and stuff. 
So I didn't have that many male role, uh, male role models in my life until my uncle came down from Coventry to, to live with us for a little bit. And my uncle being my mother's younger brother um, and uh, Coventry being a bit uh, at the time, not much going on there. So, so uh, she, she helped him come down to London and, and, and sort of settle and uh, establish himself. And in, in the process, he stayed at, at our house and you know I looked up to him. Um, he was like a father figure to me. I tried to follow him everywhere. Um, but, you know, eventually, as, as things happen with families, him and my mum, you know, they had to go their separate ways, him being a young man, um, my mum being an older woman. And, uh, yeah, he was getting up to a little bit of uh, some naughty stuff and she couldn't have him in the house anymore to influence me. You know, so unfortunately, that relationship uh, sort of uh, yeah, broke away. But um, I, I played out a lot, had lots of many friends. I lived on a, a council estate. Um, I had uh you know black and white friends but i think on my estate was mainly uh white friends and i i suffered you know sometimes the indignity of racism i didn't quite understand it at the time what was happening but um as i got older i began to realize why people would say certain things to me and about me mm. um but uh but yeah I, I generally i had a, a quite a good upbringing would you say that while you were growing up, obviously you were, as you said, you're surrounded by different ethnicities and different people. Did you need a role model growing up? And if so, who was that role model? Um, definitely feel like having a role model, especially when, you know, uh, from, for me as a young black boy, I definitely felt like I needed, you know, people to aspire to and to look up to. Um, so outside of my uncle uh, and one of my mom's partners, Oliver, who, who was around for a particular period of time, they were the only two men I knew, but sort of more out there in the public spotlight. I loved Muhammad Ali. I loved um, Bruce Lee was probably one of my number one, uh, you know, role models I looked up to because I was into martial arts from an early age. Um, I also liked Pele, the, the footballer. Uh, and um, there was uh, Jack Johnson, who I read a lot about growing up, who was the first black heavyweight champion of the world um, and a very, very controversial character back in the early 1900s during the... Uh, you know, the Jim Crow era. So uh, these are the people that I looked up to. Were you also academic? I know, because you know, sometimes you have that influence from your parents encouraging you to embrace academia. Was that something that you did embrace? Um, I did, I didn't love to, but I did because my mother, you, you know, wanted me to. She um, didn't get an opportunity to, uh, you know, educationally. She spent a lot of her time looking after her brothers and sisters. And so um, in doing so, um she missed out on her education for herself so she wanted to make sure my sister and I you know had a really good education and she sent us to good schools I don't even know how she pulled it off now that I'm a parent myself and and ha you know had to attempt to get my children into good schools I don't know how she managed to do it but she did she got us into both good schools and I did uh, you know I was an average student with the potential of you know going further but I think sometimes the company I kept uh kept me sort of back a bit but generally speaking, I did, you know, I got O-levels, which is what I did back in the day. I got six of them, which is not bad going. Um, and I, I went on to college. You know, I think that's such an important story because it can be so easy to just focus on sport or your natural instinct to be good at martial arts and so on. But to embrace academia at the same time and find that balance. Often, I'm sure, because your, your mum pushed you to, but that's, that's really good. I think that's important. Patrick, you mentioned briefly that you had experienced racism. What was that like? 
Um, yeah, I did uh, experience racism as a, at an early age, and I didn't really quite understand it at first. But then, as I got older, I realised uh, what was happening. Um, it didn't. Funny enough, it didn't affect me um, hugely. I, I don't know why. It, it, that's probably quite a sad thing, really, because I think I maybe got used to it, um, and um, probably not um, the best thing to to say. But I think I did. I think I. I got so used to the name calling, it just became, you know, sort of almost like water for ducks back. Um, and even on TV, we would watch uh, TV back in the day and you'd have your Alf Garnets of the world saying, you know, lots of derogatory things and it was all acceptable back then. So I, I guess it's the environment you grow up with. Nowadays, it's all covert. It's not as overt as it was back then. It's all, uh, you know, the, the hidden stuff. It's all the unconscious bias and the, uh, the things that are, you know, in, embedded within our society. I haven't experienced overt racism um, as an adult, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe it's probably the way I look. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's potentially more scary, isn't it? The fact that it's not so overt, that it's so discreet. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing that because it can't be easy to reflect back on those experiences and to realise that actually at the time you maybe weren't equipped to deal with it. It was just, you were just absorbing it into your kind of subconscious. Yeah. All right, well, we're on now section two. So I'm gonna introduce your next track. So your next track um, was uh, Patrice Russian, Forget-Me-Nots. Was he very yeah. different to your first one? What was it that made you choose that track? The genres of music that I listen to are, are quite wide, wide and, uh, you know, I could, you know, it was quite difficult to pick the tracks because I like so much music and different types of music. But the, the go-to music that I always really, really loved for, throughout growing up, there was like the rare groove and, and, and soul music and uh, hip hop music. Those are the two sort of stalwarts. I really loved sort of 70s um, and 80s soul music growing up. And does, does that song for you represent that change in your life from being a youth to going into the world of employment? Yeah, it does. It, it, rep it represents me sort of growing up a bit. And, um, and it also, it seemed to just appear at various points in my life, uh, life-changing you know, moments in my life, that song. So then it became to just stick with me. Then I delved a little bit more into the artist and, and I realized that yeah, I liked a lot of her, her music. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my track, man. And it holds lots of memories, fond memories with me, you know, growing up, girl, particular girlfriends and um, you know, when one of my children were born, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's always sort of there ringing in my ears. So when you left school and you entered the world of employment, what was your ambition? So, like I mentioned earlier, I was always a sporty child and I, I really wanted to, to play football or do something along those lines, but my mum was adamant. So after leaving school, I did a, um, a computer science um, course, a BTEC course at college. And the plan was to then go on and um, go to university probably Warwick because I was from Coventry originally and do a computer science degree and the course that I did would have got me sort of onto the onto the second year I wouldn't have had to do the first year I would have gone on to the second year but um, my son was born and uh, that sort of put a spanner in the works I realized I need to get a job and fast and so I the the course I did the computer science um, uh, BTEC national diploma I think it was called that got me straight into a job in the city. Um, 
And then I, that, that's where I began my 23-year stint within the corporate industry, working for various different investment banks in, the, in IT. What did it feel like as a you know, boy from Wandsworth, humble background and beginnings, going into some of the globe's most important financial centres in the city of London? It was quite daunting at first because um, there weren't too many, uh, you know, young black boys working in the city at that time. Um, we, there, I mean, there were some, but, you know, there wasn't lots of us. And luckily for me, the person that trained me up, um, a guy named Andrew, who's still a good friend of mine, he was also black. Um, and, um, you know, he made me feel at home. And um, if he could do it, I could do it. It was a, it, it was a, a bit of a wake up call as to like, like you have one world and then you're, you're thrusted into another world and you realize, wow. And then you get to see how the other half live a bit. I worked very closely with um, traders and people that um, were making lots and lots of money. And, um, you know, I'm coming from a, a council estate uh, in Battersea and Wandsworth and, uh, and now I'm rubbing shoulders with, with, with traders and millionaires basically. And it was, yeah, it was definitely a, um, a time for, to reflect on like, wow, this is what you can do if you educate yourself or if you, you know, you're lucky enough to, to uh, you know, be thrusted in a particular position or whatever the case may be. This is what you can you can do. So, yeah, it kind of opened my eyes and, and made me realize, you know, I, OK, I need to knuckle down and, um, and you know, make some money <laughs> while I'm here. Did you see any kind of disparities in the way that black staff were treated in these organizations? In the early days, I didn't because I, I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't uh, clued up in that type of stuff. Again, I was, it's probably like sort of going over my head, a bit oblivious to it all. But as I got older and, and wiser and realised um, certain things started to affect me, then I started to delve a little bit deeper and look into things and then realise, okay, yeah, there are things uh, sort of going on here untoward you know, beneath the surface. And then also when you start to talk to other people that look like you, you realize it's not a, uh, you know, you're not the only one that's going through this. There are others who are going through exactly the same thing that you are, you know, experiencing the glass ceiling where they're not able to sort of get to that next level, um, pay disparities, because we found, I found out on many occasions about the, you know, me earning a lot less money and through talking to colleagues, um, so yeah, as you get older and wiser, you start to realise uh, what's really going on. With 23 years in that industry, did you see some changes over that time in terms of disparities, diversity, inclusion challenges? The, change, the only change I really, I would say that I saw was the numbers. So in terms of, uh, you know, my first, the first firm that I went to where myself and Georgia and Andrew were, were probably like, three out of maybe you know five black people um you know by the time I, I left the city or the, my, in my last few years in the city there were lots and lots of black and asian and ethnic minority people working uh in the city so in terms of the numbers i would say that was the definite change but okay. i didn't see anything uh you know you know like in the 23 years i worked in the city i i knew of one black um sort of senior manager he wasn't even a board member he was just below the board he was a senior manager and I remember like two Asian um, senior managers, and I'm talking about 23 years at various different banks. And we're talking about, you know, the top banks in, in the city, you know, you know, five or six of them. I also worked in other spaces as well that weren't banks. And those are only people that I ever saw in the senior positions. All right, we're in section three now. So a progressive future and your final track 
was Hollywood Divorce by Outcast. Any special oh, yeah. reason for that? Um, I love Outcast. Um, I love that it's so different, uh, especially Andre. Uh, Andre, is it two thousand or three thousand? Three, definitely <laughs> three. Three thousand. Are you sure? I know. I, I, you know what? You know what it is. When you, uh, when you get to fifty, you start to have all this. Uh, is these issues of your me- with your memory <laughs> like yeah like no Andre I, I like his style uh yeah he's so eclectic he's just like he's just different man he's just like uh and so anything Outcast were doing back then I was into again it sort of shows another side to me um it's almost like a cross between hip-hop and and, and soul funk you know that yeah. you know that kind of shows my 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 uh my genres there I love that. And I, th- I love that you have uh, eclectic taste in music. I think that's important. So thank you yeah. for that. I guess to, to bring it up to kind of current day, and I guess while we're all so familiar with your name now, um, it's to do with the Black Lives Matter movement. So yeah. I, I hate to go from such, you talking so fondly about music to this question, but I'm going to go to it anyway. Where were you when you first heard about the brutal killing of George Floyd and what impact did that have on you? Um, you know what? I can't actually remember where I was when I first heard of it. I think I was out and about and I'd heard uh, people sending stuff and I, and I kind of refused to watch it. But then what happened is when I got home, um, I was at home and then it was thrusted onto the tv in the news or something and then i I was was almost forced to watch it and then i saw it uh and firstly obviously i was like i couldn't believe what i was seeing and and then that secondly uh, like a tear sort of ran down i didn't even realize at the time but then i realized it came down and went and i I thought tasted it oh my god you're crying pet pat like i just sort of talked to myself um you know when is this gonna stop like enough is enough like uh, like why why are we hated so much and I just started to to well up and I, and I cried like um it really really touched me and really really affected me and um yeah so that was when I sort of first saw it mm. and did that inspire you to get involved in the BLM marches yeah so I had some friends reach out um and what really inspired us because I'm, I'm not really a person to go to marches and demonstrations. Um, I've, I've been to carnival like uh, about probably two times in my life. And that's because I'm not really per- a person that likes lots of crowds, you know, like and, and lots of people. So, um, but um, when you had the, uh, the EDL member put out that rant, um, I don't know if you're aware of that, but he put out a rant to all the uh, football hooligans and Eng- English Defence League guys and far rights and whoever else to come down to London to protect the statues, which had already been boarded up. They were all fine and protected mm-hmm. already because they had been boarded up. So really, in, in essence, they wanted to come down for a, for a tear up or whatever they were looking for. Um, we felt, myself and my friends and I, we felt obligated to go down there because um, you know, we had had run-ins with the National Front growing up, the NF, you know, those guys, you know, let's just say they weren't very nice. So we just thought there's no way we're going to let these young protesters, women and children, because there was a lot of um, children and women protesting. We weren't going to let them face these uh, these thugs. So we decided we're going to we were going to go down there and um, and try and oversee things and protect the, those that needed protecting. And it's interesting because I think the assumption is when you see that that picture of you, 
that you were there as a protester and you weren't you were there as a protector yeah yeah, yeah. wasn't there to protest um you know the younger generation it's their time and I'm, I'm happy with them doing all of that it's the one and only protest I've actually been to I was just there to oversee and try to make sure harm didn't come to you know any of the protests or any of the young people and to make sure that none of them did anything that they would regret later on because a lot of these protesters are students at university and all it takes is is a moment of madness you know behaving crazy uh in their herd mentality and before you know it they're in front of the courts and going to prison for something that they they don't even realize what's happened you know so we wanted to make sure that we were there to as older wiser members of the community to just uh, calm people down and uh that's what we were there. And, and, you know, I think that's admirable because not everyone would take that sort of stance. I appreciate you for doing that because not everyone would. Thank you. And I think it's, it's interesting because you became a hero on that fated day. What prompted you to aid Bryn Mail? And were you surprised to learn that he was an ex-police officer? If I'm honest, not really. Um, I wasn't that surprised. Um, yeah we've been saying for, for quite some time, uh, us members of the black community, that um, the police uh, have been institutionally racist towards us. Um, and uh, here was that mic drop moment when um, here's an ex-police officer. He's a, uh, supporting a, a far right group. He supports Millwall. You know, unfortunately, Millwall do have uh, some fans, not all of them, but they have lots yeah. of fans who do uh, carry certain opinions about black people or people that are non-white um, and um, you know on top of that he's a, and he's an ex-police officer so it's sort of all it was almost like that my drop moment like, here you go we told you so <laughs> yeah was it just your instinct that kicked in you saw someone in pain and you said regardless of, of where they sit on the line you know you don't want to scare, see anyone get hurt was that the instinct that happened to you then yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, um, don't get me wrong, I weren't there to protect anybody from the other side, to be honest. I was there to protect the protesters that were marching, you know, for equality um, and look after the women and the children and the, the young men that were there. But um, I'm not the type of person that's going to stand by and see harm come to some anybody when I know that I'm capable of uh, intervening and doing something about it. So, um, you know, it was just an instinct kicked in. You know, I saw what was happening. I feared for, you know, what, what might have happened to him, as well as what would have happened to some of the young protesters had they been uh, caught on camera doing things, like I mentioned earlier, that they shouldn't be doing. Um, so I jumped in there instinctively and, um, you know, pulled him out and carried him to safety. What I think is so interesting about that story is the fact that it, your instinct kicked in to help someone on the opposition. I think that's fantastic and admirable. But what I found so, so interesting is that the man has still not said thank you. Now, I'm sure you weren't expecting a thank you, but I, it's, it's shocking to me just <laughs> that you wouldn't say thank you to someone for saving you in that moment. Do you still feel surprised by that? Or you just, may, you know, you don't really care. You're over it. Yeah, I mean, you know, what it is, it is what it is. I don't hold any grudge towards the guy um, I'm sure he has his reasons you know one day I'm for, for some reason I feel like our paths will cross one day who knows um, but like I said I don't hold no no hard feelings and um, and I didn't do it for the thanks uh, to be honest I, I've been I've got enough uh, notoriety from what happened it literally turned my life upside down and changed my life 
So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm fine with it. You know, I mean, obviously, I guess the ultimate thanks would be from him. You know what? I hope the, the ultimate thanks might be that he's changed his opinion. And he yeah. realises that we're all human together and, and that his, his actions that day were not acceptable or necessary. Um, yeah. But as you say, it's changed your life. When did you first hear that you were now, you know, famous? <laughs> the image was beaming <laughs> around the world. What was, that, what was that moment like for you? I think it's, it was probably like um, a couple of hours after uh, the fact. I think traveling back from uh, the shenanigans of the day, like, like on that day, we'd done uh, quite a few things, but my moment was caught on camera. Mm. But, um, but yeah, we were going back and get something to eat having a chat and then you know my phone started going a bit mental my sister messaged me and said is this you bruv <laughs> um it looks like you is this you and and I said oh oh yeah like <laughs> she said oh my god this is on this is on Reuters feed and it's going viral it's all over the it's going all across the world like you're you've gone viral you're bit you're, you're gonna be famous I said what are you talking about she said look like just just check so I had a look and I could see things were just going mental I showed it to my friends and then their phones started going mental as well. Um, so at the time, I just, uh, I took the, the video and the picture. She sent me a little video, some footage, and she sent me a picture. Uh, and um, I just thought, oh, let me put it on my Instagram. And I put it on my Instagram. And at the time, I thought, what would you write, like, for a picture like this? It's so, mm. it's such a poignant, um, like, moment. And then I said, you know what? I, so and I coined a phrase. I said, you know what? It's not black against white. It's everybody versus these racists in my head. And then I, I kind of wrote that, and then um, the rest is history. Like that's my quote now, <laughs> and yeah. uh, even my book was uh, sort of uh, you know named the same thing. You know, it's not black versus white; it's everybody versus racism. You know, we just changed the end a bit there, but um, but yeah, that's how uh, that's how that phrase was born. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment because that is that's the reality. That's all we what we all need to be living by as a sentiment. Um, I know from that moment you went to, and I'm probably jumping a few months ahead here, potentially, it might have been days, I'm not even sure. You <laughs> went from there to Harry and Meghan <laughs> and, and speaking to a prince. How did yeah, that yeah, that was, that, that was crazy. <laughs> well, like, firstly, um, so that was to do with GQ. So from the minute that I got, I became well known, GQ have, like really championed me. Um, and at the time, Dylan uh, Jones was the editor. I'm not sure if he still is now, editor-in-chief. Um, but they really, really supported me and they, they gave me awards. They, uh, they just championed everything I did and they had me on various shoots. They, I did so much stuff with them and I'm really thankful. And um, one of the many things they did was set up the conversation with um, um, Prince Harry. And that was sort of done at the Condé Nast up in um, where the Vogue, you know, Vogue House, as you call it, where, uh, you know, Vogue and GQ are, are based. Um, and that was, um, yeah, it's obviously something I'll never forget. It was, um, it, it, it was, it was really nice. He's, he's a really nice guy. I mean, someone I always admired anyway, because because of his involvement in Invictus Games, um, mm. I, I really, really uh, had a soft spot for him in terms of the royals, along with his, um, his mother, the Princess Diana. Um, who my mum absolutely adored, and so um, so it was nice to talk to him, and he's he was a really nice down to down to earth chat, and um, yeah, just talking. People ask me, were you nervous? And I thought, well, no, he's just a. I, I have a son who's thirty, uh, thirty one this year, and it was like talking to my son. He's just a young man, like um, and uh, so yeah, like 
it was uh yeah it was a really good conversation and uh, we uh we got to talk off camera a bit as well so there's stuff we spoke about that weren't wasn't filmed um but yeah top 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 guy and i guess from from that point point onwards you've had a catalog of amazing things happen to you so michelle obama's endorsement of the photo gq humanitarian award becoming an author and i'm sure many many more what was for you the highest achievement thus far and why um I like so, that you had a deep inhalation there because <laughs> I feel like every other question you've been able to just answer it and flow, but now you uh, yeah, to... <laughs> I know. It's um like firstly when I think back, like all of this happened in the space. I mean, obviously it's been a year since it happened, but all of this stuff we're talking about happened um, before the end of the year, right? So this happened in June, and in, within six months, I'd done all this stuff. So that was the first thing. It was in, it was an insane few months. Um, so I'd say the biggest achievement was um, the uh, the book. Becoming an author, I think, was probably my my proudest moment and, and biggest achievement, um, outside of obviously have my children and grandchildren, that is, but, but that would be the biggest achievement. But the person that had me really going a bit funny was talking to uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, um, mm-hmm. because I, I know, you know, he's the, you know, the part he's played in civil rights movement over in America, and to have, him say certain things about me he was saying something about me in a speech and then um uh, good morning britain Piers and susanna and co they got hold of it and then they decided to have me on and then they surprised me by having the reverend on as well so i didn't know the reverend was going to be on the call um on the zoom at the time and so that was an absolute shock and so to see him there live tv um it had me i was all nervous and and um it, it sort of caught me off guard as well so that was the moment that really sort of got me because with the Harry moment it was all planned and it was all organized and I knew it was happening sure. but with wherever Al Sharpton just turning up on the screen like that on live television as well that was a moment that like, I won't forget as well and it was uh, it had me like you know lump in my throat feeling all funny <laughs> <laughs> I love that you know you um they say never meet your idols right but you've actually met right, someone yeah. and, and it was and it was good you can yeah no yeah no it was uh, it was amazing and the stuff that he said about me that's what the stuff that really got me choked you know um that was what really uh yeah did it for me so patrick after 23 years in the city what advice would you have for other black professionals who are trying to enhance their career trajectory or climb the career ladder um i think my advice probably would be more for the uh the um the industry so in terms of the, the corporate world um because mm-hmm. i don't think that i can give too much more advice to uh to us as people or as as ethnic minority people we're, we're doing all we need we're, we're getting ourselves educated um and we're trying to get through the door of, of these corporates um but i think i would speak more to the corporates and i think that like the first thing I would say to them is that um, one of the things that really troubled me is that I, I wasn't somebody that liked to go out on a Friday and go for a drink. Uh, and a number of my Asian colleagues were the same for whatever reasons, or some of them were Muslim and they didn't drink alcohol, etc. But I felt like um, we were alienated because we didn't want to be part of the, of the clique, you know, and, uh, and it seemed to me that a lot of the business decisions uh, that were made, you know, were made on that Friday night. Yeah. Uh, so being working in the office for the five days of the week and being involved in meetings 
probably wasn't enough. It seemed like you had to be involved with these people on a Friday night having a drink to uh, to, to progress or be involved in, in major decisions. So I think, um, you know, not make, letting people feel uh, alienated would be, would be a major thing. Um, also, I feel like uh, when you do have a black person who does manage to make it through uh, the, uh, the obstacles and gets to somewhere near the top, they're worried about their position in that, in the, at the top. And the last thing they want to do is uh, ruffle any feathers because they, they, they know what it took them to get there and they feel like they need to sort of, I don't know, be a certain way. Uh, but I feel like the companies allowed them to be who they are and um, made them feel comfortable in their space. Uh, then those people would allow other black, would, would help other black people elevate uh, and they wouldn't be so quick to close the door behind them. Because I feel like, you know, if you do find a black guy or a black woman who is a, uh, you know, at an exec level, they sometimes close the door behind them and they uh, don't want to help anybody else come up. And I don't think it's their fault. I think it's the way that they're treated. They're, they're almost, you know, conditioned mm. to behave a certain way um, and forget those that, have, uh, that, that are behind them trying to get through the door as well. So these, these companies need to make us feel uh, like we can bring our whole selves to work and be who we are and also, you know, help others that look like us make it too um i think you know something like that is uh, is is paramount i think you're absolutely right i've um delivered training for many of these organizations and for their black networks and you know the ethnic minority networks and time and time again i'm having to train them on how to develop their personal brand and compensate for the fact that they're not going to that friday night drinks or that Thursday night drinks. And so how do you then think of other ways to network and build your profile credibility and still be in on the conversation without being in the pub? And that's, you're right, that's such yeah. a tough thing to do. And it isn't just on the person, it is on the culture of the organization. Yeah. I, I almost feel like being online, all of us being at home on Zoom has almost leveled that playing field a little bit. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard that said numerous times that you'll find that a lot of people um, from an ethnic minority background haven't minded this uh, working from home scenario because it's almost like you're, you're respected more now for what you're producing uh, in a work environment as opposed to, you know, who you're, who you're mates with and who you socialise with. It's all about work now um, and there's no socialising. Because of COVID, there's not been any socialising. So it's almost like you say, it's levelled the playing field for a lot of us. Is, is there any tips you would like to give to the audience on how to be a part of social change when it comes to racism and so on? Even if you don't want to be an activist or a protester, what can they do to be a part of the change they want to see? Um, I just think people, um, I, I don't really like to put too much pressure on people because I, I sometimes, uh, I'm, I'm a Libra and so I, I look at both sides of the scales always look at both sides to everything and sometimes I say to myself what, what's it like right now to be a white person um and it can't be easy for for, for people either because it's like they have they're, they're scared of saying the wrong things they might want to you know get involved in conversations but they're scared to say the wrong things because they'll be vilified for saying the wrong thing so firstly we've got to make sure that we don't shout people down if they do make mistakes you know we have to you know, if we're going to have these uncomfortable conversations, we have to make people feel comfortable, right? 
So that would be the first thing I would say. Like, don't don't shout shout people down. If we want to get true allies, and what's what we want? We want true allies. We don't want people just doing things for argument's sake. We want true allies on side. So therefore, we're going to have to engage with people, hear what they have to say, and and sort of see things from from their side as well. Um, so that, that that's just my take on things. I don't want anyone to feel that they need to to do this or need to do that. I want them to do it because they they feel, you know what, I really like Patrick or I really like Bianca and I want to support them in what in, in their cause or what it is they're trying to do. And um and, and they 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 want it, they're willing to to find out more and learn. And um yeah, that's that's kind of what I want. I want genuine, authentic allies, people that are willing to um to 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 support us, but they do it because they want to, not because they're being told to do it or because they feel it's the the right thing to do. So what's next for you, Patrick? Yeah, like um, there are there are things in the pipeline that I can't talk about. Um, okay. But um, one thing that I can talk about that I'm working on, like so, obviously there's Yukai, um, United to Change and, Imp- and Inspire. We don't pronounce the um, the T, so it's just Yukai, um, and um, we have four pillars, that's education, criminal justice, mental health and well-being, and youth development. And the pillar that I, I'm aligned with a lot is the educational stuff. And we're in the process of setting up a alternative educational provision. And that is for children who are not doing so well in mainstream school, being kicked out of mainstream school and thrown into pupil referral units. Um, and there is a correlation between children that go to pupil referral units and then end up becoming young offenders. Mm. or end up uh, in gangs so we're trying to break that uh, cycle and stem that flow and we're trying to give those children an alternative because you know academia for whatever reason hasn't worked for those children Um, normally because in the early years if you don't have the influence from your parents and people around you to to get start you off you know reading and doing numeracy from, from an early age you're behind as soon as you sort of get to uh, you know your early teens etc so what happens is is those children then they just fall further and further behind and then they get themselves involved in other stuff because let's face it when you're in the classroom and you don't understand something and you feel dumb you act up and you play up and you get kicked out Um, but a lot of these children I've had experience of working with with my coaching for as an athlete athletics coach and I find that they're all talented in so many other areas but no one bothers to find out what it is and so in these provisions, we're trying to uh, find out what it is that they, they're, they're interested in by, by giving them numerous opportunities. You're going to have to still do bits of maths and English, but we're going to get you to do a lot of this stuff as well. And hopefully we can um, steer these children into go on to college later on or just become apprentice somewhere, but, but just keep them off you know, that, 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 that route to, to, to becoming young offenders because we need to do something to, to stop them. And... Um, you know, on a personal note, apart from that, um, I'm going to be launching a range of uh, VMS products, vitamins, minerals, and supplements. Um, somebody's obviously seen me as a picture of health um, and an upstart, somebody that promotes fitness and health and being 50 uh, and, and apparently doing it well. Amazing. So a wellness line as well as an education yeah. facility. I, yes, I like that. yes. That's a yeah. good balance. Give me a final statement, a pledge for your future intent. What, what, what do you want to be known for in terms of your legacy? Well, I've been going into lots of schools through UKI. Um, did a couple this week. And, um, you know, what I leave the children with is I, I um, you know, but firstly, I believe that 
how to counteract racism is to start with the children. Um, I believe that if we educate the children, then the future will be bright and we'll have a lot less uh, people judging people um, for the color of their skin. Mm. So uh, I feel like um, some of the uh, older people, there are lost causes, but the children are definitely the way to go. And so I go into schools and we talk about, you know, what happened to me on that day, what I did, why I become um, famous and, um, you know, why it's not cool to, you know, be a bully or be a racist or discriminate against people. And it's been going down really well with the children. And I like to leave them with, um, you know, the, the old Gandhi saying of, you know, if we all be the change we want to see in the world, the world will change overnight. And so that's what I'm championing. I'm just trying to champion um, everybody trying to be the change they want to see in the world and, and to try and, because there's lots, there's so much toxic stuff going on in the world today. And so we need to, we need to counteract it with positive energy and positive stuff and positive vibes and, you know, educate our children. And if we do that, I feel like, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come out on top eventually. And that is a beautiful sentiment to end on. Be the, be the change you want to see in the world. I think we could yeah. all live by that. Um, sadly, we've, we've finished, uh, we've run out of time. I could sit and talk to you all day, quite literally. I've got so many more questions I want to ask you, but um, thank you very much, Patrick, for, for joining me today and opening up about your fascinating life, your remarkable relationships and your future aspirations and, and just being so open and honest about it. I really do appreciate that. Please join us next time on the BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, business leader or famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review, and leave your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fair society, please email us on podcast at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until next time, goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.